Lessons from History with Elizabeth and Daisy. And in this week's episode of the podcast, we are going to be talking about Roald Dahl. So Roald Dahl, you may have seen, he's been making the headlines recently because his publisher, uh, Penguin Random House, they published some highly edited versions of his famous children's books and they've removed language that's considered problematic. And I think the book we really want to look at today and really focus on is Dahl's autobiography, Boy. So it was published in 1984 it's all about his childhood and it's had a huge influence on people's idea of what ideas of what of what prep schools and public schools are like and it also gives us an insight into how formative these educational experiences were for Dahl and that's something we're going to explore further in this episode now Lizzie I know you've been doing a bit of research on this but I just want to set the context by speaking about Dahl's phenomenal popularity I remember reading all his books as a child everyone I went to we everyone I went to school with we all read his books uh, and when I started teaching, his books were still incredibly popular. And I think Boy was certainly one of my favourites when, when I was a kid. I've got vivid, vivid memories of teaching it in a couple of different schools. I've got one particular memory of reading The Great Mouse Plot from Boy with a class of sevens and a little boy just falling about it, laughing at how funny it was and just absolutely loving it. And I would say both the school I went to and the schools I taught in, they're very removed socially, demographically, from Dahl's own background. So I think what you've got is, for a lot of people who didn't go to these kinds of schools that Dahl went to, like the, the prep schools, these famous English independent schools, all the, a, lot of, a lot of them, all they know about these schools may well be from this book, Boy. It's, it's had such a, an outsized impact. So I think the first question we need to ask and think about is, well, how reliable is it? <laughs> We're all sitting here thinking, I certainly, as I say, when I was growing up, thought that's just what the average... English independent school is like uh, is is it true and, and and I should point out too that obviously some of the stories in Boy are pretty horrific there's a lot of violence <laughs> violence from other pupils uh, from, from the teachers there's just lots of you feel like casual sort of cruelty and nastiness so is, is all this true, is it reliable, is that is, is that the reality, so, so over to you It was interesting revisiting Boy as an adult and the introduction that Dahl gives to the work is quite enlightening. He says it's not an autobiography because those are, are full of boring details, but that a number of things happened to him that he's never forgotten. Each of them, he says, is seared on my memory and I didn't have to search for any of them. Some are funny, some are painful, some are unpleasant. I suppose that is why I've always remembered them so vividly. All are true. And it's quite a provocative statement for him to make. Mm. Dahl's writing this book, he's nearly 70, he's subject to all of the failings of memory which, um, you know, come to us all. Um, and there's also, you know, a desire there to present a flattering self-portrait. And what's more, we know Dahl's an expert storyteller, so he knows when to edit and when to exaggerate. Dahl once said, I don't lie, I merely make the truth a little bit more interesting. And yeah. he confessed to his contemporaries that Boy was coloured by his natural love of fantasy. So obviously we've got to keep this in mind when we're considering his experience of education and we'll be drawing on sources that are external to Dahl's own memoir in this episode, which at times corroborate, but at other times contradict what Dahl has to say. Definitely, and, and I would say I, I reread Boy just before, uh, yeah, before, before we were doing this and... I was rereading The Great Mouse Plot because it's one of my favourite, favourite bits. And when you read it as a child, I think, yeah, you just take it as, as verbatim while that happened in, in reality. But he reports these conversations with his friend Thwaites, word for word. Now, obviously, nobody can recall word for word conversations that you had when you were eight years old, when, you, when, you're, at, when you're 70 or 80. <laughs> so obviously, there's going to be a bit of, 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 of poetic licence there. And the, a lot of the poetic licence when it comes to that Great Mouse Plot is making it very funny. So some of the things Thwaites says, this little eight-year-old whose father is a doctor, uh, are, are very amusing and make you laugh. And you think that probably wasn't exactly how it, how it played out. So there's definitely that authorial crafting of the, the narrative there. You can definitely see it. But tell us some of the details about these schools that he went to, like how much we, we know of those, uh, the, the reality of it. So we know quite a lot about the schools. We know um, a, a lot about uh, Repton, which is the final school that Dahl attends. 
But we also know about the other two schools that feature prominently in the book. He starts off at Clanduff Cathedral School in Wales and then goes on to St Peter's, which is a boys' prep school in Western Supermare. So there's actually quite quite a lot of other things to, to draw upon. Dahl's parents were Norwegian. And it's interesting because in a way he's often seen as someone who's kind of archetypally British. Suddenly the stories are seen as these sort of landmarks in British children's literature. But I suppose his education has a big role in in that, in, in shaping his outlook. His father dies when he's very young. And according to, to Roald Dahl, his father's dying wish was that he wanted his children to be educated in English schools. And his father says that English schools were the best in the world and that the education they provided caused the inhabitants of a small island to become a great nation and a great empire and to produce the world's greatest literature. So this is another moment where I think, did his dad really say that? I'm talking <laughs> up a bit, but you know, that's, that's, that's lovely, isn't it? And I think we've talked in previous episodes, haven't we, about how British schools, English schools do have this international reputation. They still have it today, perhaps even more so. And I think one other thing to point out, his parents are Norwegian, but they don't actually, Pop doesn't actually settle in England, is it? it's in Wales where they settle. Mm. So in that sense, you're thinking of the English public school. Maybe he's a, an outsider in, in a couple of ways in that he's family Norwegian, but he grows up in, in, in Wales. And as you say, first of all, uh, Clanduff Cathedral School, I hope I've said that right. Uh, and then the, the prep school in Western Supermare and then Repton. And I must say, yeah, I went, again, when, when I was growing up reading it, I just assumed these were the three most famous schools in, in, in England or Wales because <laughs> they're in the book. Um, but actually, let's, let's, let's just start with Repton. Um, so that's obviously the, 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 the public school that he goes to, the English public school. And tell us, like, how, how does it, first of all, tell, tell us how he ends up there and, and what Repton's sort of reputation was. Repton definitely sits in the minor public school category for those who've listened to our, our first episode about public schools. Yeah, give us a, a bit of a recap. What What is a, a minor public school? Like, I think we said, didn't we, it's maybe a little bit of a snobby term. It is so a bit of a So you've got these term. public schools on my right, which are defined, if you like, in statute. Uh, there's an, a, an actual act of parliament regarding them. And then you've got these other public schools, which are kind of not part of that, and therefore often referred to as the, the minor public schools. Is that right? And so mm. Repton's one of those. Yeah, Repton's one yeah. of those. Um, yeah. It... Uh, in common with a lot of minor public schools was set up as a Tudor charitable foundation isn't that successful in fact in the 18th century it's dwindling so much that there's only one single pupil (laughs) attending Repton School Um, but then it gets a new lease of life by adopting the ideology of a famous headmaster Thomas Arnold Arnold's famous for his work at rugby school and particularly this ideology of muscular Christianity. So bringing in a sort of Christian moral code within the school, but also uh, some of the things that are characteristic of public schools, so team sports and the idea of having a monitorial system. So Repton's very much in that role, um, in that mould that is established by Arnold. Why he ends up there is slightly unclear, Can I say my recollection of this? Mm. My recollection from reading the book was that his mum says you can go to Marlborough or Repton and you can't pronounce Marlborough and he says Repton. (laughs) Which again is one of those moments that just always stayed with me. And and, and yeah, you wonder how how true that is. So yeah, how how does he end up there? So there might be some truth in that. The main reason he ends up there is that the prep school that he's at before that, St Peter's in Western Supermare, is geared up to send boys to that kind of middle-rank public school. So they're not sending boys off to Eton, Winchester, Harrow. They are sending pupils off to Repton and Marlborough. Some of their teachers have been to those schools. Captain Hardcastle, which we'll talk about, we'll talk about him a little bit more later on. Uh, Captain Hardcastle uh, went to uh, Repton himself. And then there's a family friend who's at Repton. So it's all those sort of ties and connections which I think lead to Dahl ending up up at Repton. Great. So you talked there about the link between... So Repton's the big, the big if you like, secondary public school. Um, and it's got links with all these, if you like, feeder schools, prep schools that are across the country. And one of those is St Peter's in Western Supermare. That's where Dahl goes. So before he's at Repton, he's at, at St Peter's. And actually before that, he's at this other school, Clanduff, which is where the Great Mouse plot takes place. Tell us about those schools then. 
Well, let's start with the cathedral school because that's the first school that he really recalls. He's there between the ages of seven and nine. He admits himself that he doesn't actually remember much from that time, but one of the things that he does describe and probably forms the most memorable incident in the whole book is this great mouse plot. What do you... Can you describe the great mouse plot? Can you do us a little summary? I, I can definitely do a little summary. And I think that my summary won't do it justice because I think when you summarise it, it just sounds a bit, a bit like a nasty plot. But when you when you read it, it's just priceless. And I think, as always with Dar, what makes it so pricelessly funny is it all being from this, this slight double view of the point of view of the eight-year-old boy and that it's happening to this eight-year-old boy and then the slight knowingness of the author, the, the, the adult author... How does it work? It's him and his, his four, four friends. Yeah, I think they're, they're eight or nine years old. And they love the sweet shop. And I think there's a great line that the sweet shop was to us as the, the pub is to the alcoholic. You know, it's the centre of their life. It's all they care about. And unfortunately, the woman who runs the sweet shop is not the nicest woman. I'm going to read out what they say about her. And I think I'm going to read it out knowing that this might be the kind of passage that gets rewritten uh, and that gets edited. So the woman who runs the sweet shop, her name was Mrs. Pratchett. She was a small, skinny old hag with a moustache on her upper lip and a mouth as, so- as sour as a green gooseberry. So that's definitely getting uh, getting edited out, probably. Um, she never smiled. She never welcomed us when we went in. And the only times she spoke were when she said things like, I'm watching you, so keep your thieving fingers off them chocolates. Or I don't want you in here just to look around. Either you forks out or you gets out. So that's the kind of woman who's running this sweet shop. She has very dirty fingers, which she uses to fish the sweets out of the jars. She's quite sort of stingy with, with the portion sizes of the, the, the sweets and wraps them up only in little twists of the, the Daily Mail rather than giving them a proper bag. So they've all sort of got it in for her. Uh, and what they decide that to do, they, they find a dead mouse one day. Actually, this is all Dar's idea. He says it was all my idea. This was my, my greatest moment. Uh, he finds, uh, they, they find a dead mouse one day and he decides, let's put it in a jar of the sweets. And they do that. They put it in the jar of sweets. I think the the sort of dramatic the the the, the dramatic sort of uh, next thing is that they turn up at school, and she's there with the headmaster, demanding to know who put this mouse in the jar. So they get into a tremendous amount of trouble. That leads to the probably the first. I think it's the first bit in the book where you have a really graphic description of corporal punishment. So Darwin, his his mates get punished for uh, the great mouse plot. And Mrs. Pratchett, the old hag, she's sitting in the corner egging the headmaster on as he thrashes all the boys. So it's this very, very grotesque scene. Very grotesque um, and very funny, sort of darkly funny. And another thing I'll say here is when you, when I've taught Dahl, a lot of children mix him up with Charles Dickens. And I think that's partly because maybe they're the two authors they've heard of. They're the two most famous authors in a lot of ways. But I think it's also because they have a lot in common. They both tell things from that perspective of the child. Uh, and it, it feels to me there's a lot in common with Boy with Great Expectations, with those scenes where Pip is, uh, you know, the, the, he's stolen the, the pork pie and given it to the convict Mag- Magwitch. There's a bit of similarities there. And I think there's something in it that's just that's quite elemental that, that, that children just um, relate to. Uh, so, yeah, it's a, it's a comic story. It's a dark story. And who knows sort of exactly the, the, how many of the details of it are, are true, but I suspect the corporal punishment, we know, you know, that a lot of that corporal punishment did, did happen. And as I say, that's one of the things both at the cathedral school he's at, then at the prep school and at the at Repton. That's just such a theme of, of the book. And that's, as I say, the first example of it. It's definitely, yeah, yeah it's far from the last. So we'll, yeah. we, we will touch on that more as we go through. I think the story is so interesting. There's... Dahl's real fixation on uncleanliness, but also sometimes deformity and disability as an outward sign of immorality. Mm. And I mean, that comes through even in the the Bond film that he writes the the Mm. screenplay for You Only Live Twice, because that's the first time that we actually see Blofeld's scarred face. Mm -hmm. And it's this, this shocking reveal. The sweet shop, we know in real life, actually, it was run by two sisters. So he's very cleverly elided these into a, a single grotesque and Mrs Pratchett it would be so easy to see her as, as the colonel for a character like Mrs Twit yeah. but I think in a way it sort of works the other way around you know Dahl is writing Mrs Pratchett after having come up with some of his grotesques and his stories and there I think 
reflecting back on his childhood rather than necessarily the other way the other way round. Well, definitely, you can see it running both ways. Mm. Maybe there's the two sisters, and then he creates these books, and then he comes back to write that, and then you can see it operating in every direction, can't you? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Obviously, what really interests me about the story is this depiction of corporal punishment. It's fascinating, if it were the case, that Mrs Pratchett is the witness of the corporal punishment. It's very different from what you would get with a lot of public schools and boarding schools. I think it comes through the because um, Clanduff is is a, a local day school, that there is more of a relationship between the headmaster and the pupils and the people in the town. Because the idea that uh, a local shop owner would walk into one of the more major public schools and demand that the headmaster react in a certain way and mm. supervise that punishment is uh, completely uh, unreal, would, yeah. would never have happened. Absolutely. I mean, look children in sweet shops that happens now you see a lot of sweet shops now that they have signs no more than two children in one time again you know I know a lot of the schools I've worked in you lots of children piling in there at the end of the day that's that's something that's that's still there yeah but the idea of a, a, a the owner of a sweet shop going and talking to the head of one of the big public schools feels very unrealistic but this is a day school so she goes in apparently and uh, yeah demands to have him punished and sits there and watches the punishment and it's, yeah, it's, it is fascinating reading it now from the 21st century perspective and, you know, the concerns we have about safeguarding. You read this scene and you think, this is just insane. Um, so, OK, so we've got we've got the, the Great Mouse plot and that's the, um, say, that yeah. there. So anything, anything more on that? Dahl really brings through the fact that although the violence is upsetting, what's worse is that it's to an audience and that Mrs Pratchett being there, he says it, it becomes a nightmare. There is that sense that the the problems with corporal punishment are more than just the pain that it inflicts. Um, they're associated with, with the shame of the act and the fact that there might be an audience to that that shame. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of that in the other bits as well, aren't mm. there? Yeah, so, so yeah, that's, it's not just, as you say, not just the punishment, sort of the public punishment, yeah. And the ending of the story is, of course, that he goes home and as he's having his evening bath, mm. his mother discovers that he's been wounded in this way and immediately puts on her hat and goes round to the headmaster to complain. And, of course, this is all relayed by Dahl, but the interaction she has with the headmaster is quite interesting because she is shocked and says, you know, we don't beat small children like that where I'm from. And, of course, the headmaster replies that, well, you know, you're a foreigner. You don't understand how things are run here. He essentially tells her either you you you're happy with how I'm running this school or you take your son away and she effectively calls his bluff and does find a new school uh, to send him to and takes him away at the end of the term so she does do that but doesn't really get any better no it's very much <laughs> so this sort is of... you sort of feel yeah maybe the, the headmaster in that sense is right all your English schools are going to be like this <laughs> so, yeah what what happens next well, yeah, that's what she states. She's thinking an English school this time, you know, back from, uh, get away from what's going on in Wales. At an English school, such horrors won't go on. But for Dahl, it's frying pan into the fire. Mm. So he's sent away for the first time to a boarding school. Uh, it's across in Western Supermare. And even allowing for Dahl's comic hyperbole, boys' prep schools during this period are pretty horrible places. And it gives Dahl a bit of a problem in in the book, but also probably in his own interior life, because he wants to maintain the virtue of his mother, who he very much puts on a pedestal. So she can't be blamed for the awful suffering that he goes through at this school. For Dahl, in some ways, it's easy because he can plausibly suggest his mother was innocent. And she's, after all, is acting on, on the wishes of his dead father. And she doesn't understand what she's sending him to. But for a lot of boys at the time who were sent to these prep schools and these these public schools their parents that certainly their fathers would have experienced a similar education themselves and were well aware of what they were inflicting on their children for many of them there is this expectation that the children are going to adjust to this spartan way of living and that it's going to be good for them absolutely and i, I suppose there is that sense when you're reading it you always think what's it like for the other boys do they all do they all hate it as well like is it is it is it just dull does he have particularly kind of bad time but I would say as well, when you read it, you also get the impression, as you say, these interwar prep schools, that they're pretty run down. They don't feel... You don't feel like there's much money. 
Yeah, definitely. So he attempts to get home by faking appendicitis. And it sort of works. He gets back to, to Cardiff, but the doctor there catches his lie. And he's, he's rather kind. He, he maintains the subterfuge, but he reinforces in Dahl this sense that he shouldn't be burdening his mother with his problems. And in fact, he tells Dahl that, that his mother hadn't wanted to send him away, that she, she had felt that he was too young. But the doctor had insisted and said that it was the, the right thing to do. And of course, you know, this sets up this sort of helpful duality in Dahl. He's having one life here as a, as a pupil and a completely different life at home. And he's not being honest with his mother about what's going on at school. So he talks about letter writing and the fact that letter writing is a supervised activity. Even if pupils make errors in their letters, these are caught by the masters, but not corrected within the letters themselves. So they're trying to maintain the fiction that these are letters that are written by the pupils without any sense of censorship. But the pupils themselves are very aware that they are being watched. So Dahl develops this very helpful habit of writing letters to his mother and he writes weekly to her throughout his life and she keeps all of the letters which are really very insightful and very interesting. But we can see that what perhaps begins as censorship at school becomes a self-censorship as he's getting older and we can see his abilities as a storyteller developing but also perhaps that he's trying to protect his mother from more unpleasant aspects of his life. Yeah, I'm just going to throw in a random tangent here. I don't know if you remember, back in the the mid-90s, Jonathan Aitken, he was a Tory cabinet minister, and he he lost this big libel case against the Guardian, and he went to prison. And when he was sentenced, he was famously sort of quoted as saying, well, look, prison's going to be fine for me because I went to Eton. And I remember my grandparents were alive at the time. I remember, you know, they were chatting about it, maybe chatting about my parents, and the sort of consensus was... Yeah, if he went to Eton, that probably is like prison. You know, everyone sort of accepted, yeah, you know, these schools were, were tough, they were prison-like. Whereas, if you said that now, if, you know, modern day Aitken said, oh, I'll be all right in prison because I've been to Eton, you'd get laughed at. Mm. You'd say, do you think Eton's as tough as prison? Of course it isn't. You've got a swimming pool, you've got a lovely, you know, lovely rooms, you've got all luxuries, mod cons, whatever. So, it does speak to the fact that when Aitken said that, he didn't get laughed out of town. Yeah. Even sort of working class people are like, yeah, it's pretty tough in these public schools. And I think that's something that's that's changed. I think public schools are a lot nicer now just on those, just, yeah, in that sense of, of, of the, 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 just the, the living conditions. That, but that, that's just the other, the other sort of thing. I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of working class people, middle class people would look at it and go, well, why, why would you send your children that these people are wealthy? they're not they're not they're not the downtrodden poorest of society and they're choosing to send their children to these prison camps and there's a case for saying that there's a lot of people who are a lot poorer than Dahl's family probably have a much nicer and much better experience at school and a much comfier experience so what what is is this just yeah that English that English sense of you've got to toughen them up and you've you've got to sort of yeah you know chuck them in, in in cold water and put them in tough living conditions and beat them in order to become men is is that it? It's just a cultural thing. I think there's part of that definitely. There is a sense of some pastoral care. So there's the figure of the matron, but matron can send you to the headmaster and you'll be caned without question. And Dahl talks about some of the things that Matron does. She puts soap in the mouth of a boy who snores. He also talks about some of the pranks that they, in return, play on Matron. So there's a boy who sprinkles sugar on the floor. And in solidarity, none of the boys will confess and say which boy has done this misdeed, performed this prank. And one of the things, one of the sort of little details that I thought was very telling is that all of the boys have a tuck box and Dahl describes this tuck box as being uh, a secret storehouse and that there's this unwritten rule that nobody else will look in your tuck box and you even have your own little uh, lock and, and key to your tuck box and when none of the boys will confess to having sprinkled sugar on the floor what the headmaster does is he doesn't raid their tuck boxes to see who's got a bag of sugar what he does is he confiscates the keys so even in this awful place, there is this degree that the boys have their independence mm -hmm. and they do have this private vicinity which is respected, mm -hmm. this private space. Okay, interesting. Yeah. 
And what are, what about the teachers here? You talked about Captain Hardcast, so you probably maybe got a bit of shell shot. You talked about the matron, some of the heads. What, what about the teachers? So there are a lot of people like Hardcastle who have fought in the First World War mm. and are suffering the effects from it. Hardcastle had, in real life, he was called Captain Lancaster. He had distinguished himself on the first day of the Somme, but he was ultimately invalided out of the army. They describe him as suffering from something called um, neurasthenia. Mm-hmm. which I think we would nowadays probably call shell shock or indeed post-traumatic yeah. stress disorder. Hardcastle, or or Lancaster, whatever we want to call him, he's a figure that provokes mixed reactions. So he's actually still teaching at the school in Western Supermare in the 1960s. Wow. And he has a number wow. of notable pupils. So he teaches Monty Python John Cleese. Oh, wow. Who he apparently called six foot of chewed string. <laughs> oh dear. And he also teaches uh, the biographer Charles Hyam. And some of them actually respond to him quite well and find him quite an engaging teacher. Dahl also talks about someone called Mr Jop, who only has one hand. He'd been in the Air Force um, in the war and as a consequence had, had lost his hand. So he describes him, he says, they were tough and if you wanted to survive you had to become mm. pretty tough yourself. I think what was really interesting for me rereading it is that as, 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 I don't think it mentions explicitly, barely, barely mentions World War One, but you reread it now, I reread it now as an adult, and it feels like it's shot through World War One, and you you just have this sense of yeah, the the sort of the, the the horror of it hanging over everyone, and there must be an element too, as the years go by, of not just the horror of what's gone, but the fear of what is to come. Mm. It, you know, maybe is that is that too much to think that there's some of that is going on, of just the 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 toughness that's need, needed to survive in a world where you have these brutal wars, um, and where you know another thing sort of Dahl is mentioning, but so many of the boys who went to these schools, incredibly high percentages of them would have been killed, um, both in World War One and in World War Two. Yeah, yeah. You get the sense that he's being introduced to the idea of unfairness. Yeah in these interactions that he's having with adults. So he describes a boy who's refused permission to go to the lavatory during prep, which was a supervised study that was going on after school, consequently dirties his pants, and then is punished for this by the the school matron. And then Hardcastle accuses Dahl of being a liar and a cheat because Dahl talks to another boy during prep in an attempt to borrow a new nib for his pen so that he can complete his work. And when Dahl is questioned by the headmaster, he's forced into a position where he can't deny Hardcastle's world because Hardcastle is an officer and a gentleman. Uh, So there's this strong sense that this is a world where children are, are not believed, but as a consequence, you get this really strong sense of solidarity between the schoolboys. Mm-hmm. And Hardcastle definitely turns up in fictionalised form. There's a, there's a Captain Lancaster in, in Danny Champion of the World, mm-hmm. and he must feed in to, to Miss Trunchbull, you know, to an, to an extent. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. So those are the, the kind of teachers. We sort of covered that from the prep school. So then would it have been at 13 that he goes on to Repton? Is that right? Yeah, yeah. that's right. So at 13 he goes on to Repton. We talked a bit about, about that, how he ends up there, that St Peter's a bit of a feeder for it. So he turns up at Repton. Is Repton any better? <laughs> what's, what's, what has that? Repton's interesting for Dahl. I think one thing that really doesn't get mentioned in Boy all that much is Dahl's own academic performance. But it's actually something that really comes through quite strongly in the letters that he's writing home to his his mother. He's always reporting on what his order is in the different subjects in his correspondence. That's something that I think it's quite hard for us to get our heads around now, but it was something that carried on right the way through in a lot of schools well into the 90s. The sense that you would be placed in an order in your form according to how well you were doing and that you would be aware of that order. And he's physically large for his year group, which gives him an advantage in sports but he's terrified about being held back a year due to his lack of ability when it comes down to the the school lessons. And this ultimately happens to him um, at St Peter's. He's held back for a year. In some ways, that's good because he feels a bit more confident in his ability and he does quite well. But then as soon as he goes up a year, he loses heart. And one teacher says he imagines he's doing badly and as a consequence does do badly. I don't know what you feel about this, this sense of knowing where you are compared with your peers and how in some 
children, that's a really positive thing and can spur them on. But others, it can really have a seriously negative impact on their mental health. Absolutely. And, and from an assessment point of view, it's all very interesting. You sort of, the, the technocratic assessment critique, I guess, and defence of what, what happens there being placed in, in order, the, the critique of it is obviously it's completely zero sum. So however well you do, even if you're doing pretty well, if you're in a good year group or if everyone else is doing well, you, you won't show up. And the other difficult thing about it is what it also teaches you, and this is maybe of a piece for the rest of these schools, is that for you to do well, if, if others do badly, you'll do better. <laughs> so if you're in a, you know, a small class of sort of 20 or 30, well, one way to do better is to do better and one way is to make sure someone else does worse. <laughs> um, so that's the, the kind of problem with those approaches. What I would say is there's a difference between how you assess in private and what you tell students in public. So I think you do have to acknowledge the fact that teachers, when they are teaching a class, will probably have some idea of how the students are all doing relative to each other. And that's not a bad thing. And, and knowing that and working with that behind the scenes can be very useful. I do. I think, yes, as, as Dara's shown, there are issues when you reveal that to students and make that a huge thing. And as I say, turn it into that quite zero-sum competition. Um, and that's why one of the, the, the big dreams of all assessment uh, assessment people is probably to come up with something that's not as, as, as I say, as zero-sum or as what you might call technically cohort-referenced. So, you know, you're referencing someone against their cohort. That you'd want to think about something that is more criterion-referenced. Now, criterion-referencing has its big technical challenges, but you can see, when you see what happens with Dole, you can see why people would want something like that because it's the idea that... It, an individual student can almost just work out how they are doing relative to some kind of absolute standard and and, and work towards that. Uh, and that is something, as I say, is technically challenging. And I, I know I'm off on a huge tangent here, but this is uh, this is my day job. Of, of uh, Is there a way of trying to construct something like that that is robust and, and easy to understand? Um, but you're absolutely right that the traditional sort of simple way of doing assessment is just to rank students. And that I think that does absolutely... Um, have its issues in terms of how, how how students respond to that that isn't always great for them and yeah clearly not 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 great for Dahl either but he doesn't do so you're saying he doesn't do brilliantly sort of academically but he does do very well at sports doesn't he so I always remember this he, he does he does very well at sports mm, and this comes into its own when he's at Repton so he becomes a uh, captain of a couple of teams he's very good at fives which is um a, a game that's almost exclusively played at public schools in fact there's two different varieties both named after different public schools so there's eton fives and there's rugby fives and dahl's brilliant at that and i think in some ways it pays off in terms of the status that he has at the school but it doesn't pay off in every respect because ordinarily if in a public school you were a captain of a sports team you would pretty much assume that you would become a monitor at the school. And that doesn't happen to Dahl. I always found that so remarkable and that really stayed with me. And I think it says something maybe about Dahl's character more broadly, doesn't it? So he says that typically if you were a captain of any sport, you would automatically become a prefect or a monitor, as you say. And he, he doesn't. He's, and he's captain of a, a couple of sports and he's in the team of a... He plays for the first team of a couple of other sports. So he's very, he's very good at, at all kinds of sports, but they, he doesn't become a prefect. And he says, the authorities did not like me. I was not to be trusted. I did not like rules. I was unpredictable. <laughs> um, and I suppose, yeah, you see sort of things he does in, in later life. Perhaps that, 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 that is true. And I think that does speak something about him, that he is immensely talented, but, but unpredictable with it. And, and, and yeah, he comes through in this book. I think Dahl in real life was a little bit more resentful of that than he perhaps portrays in Boy. In Boy, he's almost proud of the fact that he doesn't become a prefect, doesn't become a monitor. He emphasised too that he really would have disagreed with the rules that he would have had to enforce, and particularly that he wouldn't have wanted to have to beat younger pupils, which would have uh, been a responsibility of a monitor at that time. So he makes rather a virtue out mm -hmm. of not being made a monitor, but I'm not sure 18-year-old Dull quite felt that way about it. Okay, yeah. Yeah, fair enough. We should talk a little bit more about the monitors. At Repton, they have a particular title. Yeah, so this is another thing, isn't it? All these uh, crazy public school slang. So, I think we've talked about this before, but the, the monitors are called bozers. Mm. Is that right? Am I saying that right? Yeah. And the, the captain of teams, when the, when the captain picks someone, if he wants to give them their, their, their colours, you know, their school colour, uh, he'll say, he'll go up to them, shake their hand and say, 
braggers on your teamers. So <laughs> all this completely random slang, which makes very, very, very little sense to anyone from outside. Um, and so you've got these bozers who are, like I say, the monitors or the prefects. And then they've got the, the younger boys they order around are called fags. Is that right? Yeah. So yeah. we talk about the fagging system. Yeah. And when I ask pupils about fagging, if they've heard of it, if they understand what mm. it is, they often do reference boy mm-hmm. and Roald Dahl's experience in particular the menial tasks that they had to perform for these monitors including warming the toilet seat so that's what Dahl is particularly talented at apparently he has a, a warm backside and one of the monitors Wilberforce therefore decides that he's going to be his chief toilet warmer and Dahl jokes that he gets through the entire works of Dickens whilst waiting on this outside lavatory, warming the seat for Wilberforce, which I think, is, again, is probably a bit of an exaggeration because there's a lot of Dickens to, to get through, isn't <laughs> That's there? That's true. It's very prolific, yeah. <laughs> so I think Dahl, his key point about these bozers, which is significant, is that he thinks that the pupils are desensitised in this environment by being the perpetrators of violence on, on young pupils. In the original draft of Boy, he actually talks about being put in a cold bath, fully clothed, and having his head held under the water by other boys. Yeah. So he does talk about incidents of, of bullying. Accounts by contemporaries actually suggest that Dahl himself was a bit of a bully, which is perhaps not entirely unexpected, given some of the cruelty that comes mm-hmm. through in his fiction. So we know that he was particularly good at coming up with nicknames, unsurprising isn't mean, it, given, mean yeah, nicknames, some of these um, writing, yeah. but also that he he physically bullied some of his contemporaries too. Okay, so and the, the fagging that he talks about is that is that a, that's not unique. So the word bozer is that unique to Repton, but fagging isn't. Fagging yes. is across all the public schools. Fagging is across all public schools, right. but bozer is unique. Apparently, it comes from a Tudor term, bursier, mm-hmm. which is. Um, in Repton's particular uh, foundation statutes, so so okay. that's where where they get their bozers. From. And and fagging does that still exist now? No. And if it does, so when did it stop? Or like, did it get faded out? Or was it a big thing where they were like, no, you're not doing this anymore? It's, 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 it doesn't happen in any of these public schools anymore. It doesn't happen anymore at any school, to my knowledge. Okay. But it's something that really gradually disappears. Okay. So you okay. hear talk of it still going on in the 80s. Right. In fact, there was uh, the yeah. rumour that Louis Theroux okay. was the fag of Nick Clegg <laughs> when they were at school together. So we're talking okay. figures who were okay. at school in the 80s there. Okay. And I've often wondered, there's probably something to be done about fag family trees, you know, okay. sort of generations of people who fag for one another well i'm astonished i'm still getting over the guy the same guy who talked i'll talk john cleese okay he's yeah he's a he's a captain of games he's a fag or you know he doesn't become a bozer even though he's captain of all the, the the games the other thing i think about repton is he does talk about the head teacher there doesn't he the head teacher is also a clergyman mm. as would have been the case in a lot of these schools is that is that right very much so yeah, yeah. and Dahl says that it, it kind of made him question his faith in God, kind of all the violence that's that's going on here. I suppose, yeah, when you when you look at what you've said, you do get the impression that Repton in particular, in the in the prep school and the the, the, the day school, obviously the teachers are, are are more in charge. You get the impression at Repton that the boys, the older boys, have quite a lot of authority. Yeah. And that's actually part of the principle, I guess, a lot of these schools, to give the older boys that authority. But you also get the impression that it's therefore a bit anarchic. <laughs> And that the older boys are, in some ways, maybe a little bit of a law unto themselves. So to, to what extent is there oversight from the adults? And you've got lots of clergymen, lots of a Christian ethos. What's what's going on there? There's a real difficulty there because, yes, it's often the boys who are maintaining discipline within the school. But what do you do if one of those boys goes rogue? Mm. And it's not unheard of for the headmaster to beat pupils. But this tends to occur in very serious cases when older pupils have misbehaved. And this is very much a a last resort and something that would have been very shaming. And one of the incidents that Dahl relates is that a friend of his called Michael, Michael Arnold, was beaten by the headmaster. And Dahl talks about how this really did mean that he had very little faith in Christianity and and organised religion to see this 
this religious figure of, of this headmaster beating a boy and apparently in the the incident in question strikes of the cane were interspersed with the headmaster filling his pipe mm. and giving a lecture on sin mm-hmm. and uh dahl makes the incident sound incredibly sinister mm-hmm. and goes on to talk about how this headmaster became bishop of chester and then ultimately mm. the archbishop of canterbury and crowned the queen in westminster abbey in 1953 mm. There's a bit of a problem here, which one of the biographers has picked up on, and that's that the incident in question, when this boy, Michael Arnold, was beaten by the headmaster, is recorded, and the headmaster in question wasn't the headmaster who went on to be Archbishop of Canterbury. He'd okay. actually left a okay. few years previously. Okay, so and... what, what is interesting, I'm sorry, I just need to sort of interrupt there. So what is interesting is Repton, the headmaster you're talking about is Geoffrey Fisher. Mm. And Geoffrey Fisher becomes Archbishop of Canterbury 1945 to 1961 and is therefore the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time of the Queen's coronation. And he was the headmaster when Dahl was at Repton. Mm. And interestingly, the previous Archbishop of Canterbury had been the previous headmaster at Repton, I think, William Temple. So they'd been at Repton, I think, there a couple of times. And Dahl, so Dahl was at Repton when Geoffrey Fisher was at Repton. That, yes. is a, that is a historical fact. But when this big incident he talks about happened... Fisher was not the headmaster. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, Fisher had moved on right. and he'd become Bishop of Chester. Right. So I think yeah. what's happened here is a bit yeah. like uh, the two sisters in the sweet shop. Dahl's yeah. taken two separate individuals mm. and either yeah. accidentally, through error of memory, yeah. or deliberately yeah. turned them into a single individual. I mean, I, I'm going to read out what he says because it's pretty striking. And it is... I remember, as I say, reading this thinking, oh, this is appalling, like the British establishment. But he says... Um, from Chester, he was promoted to be Bishop of London. He bounced up the ladder to get the chop job of the Moor Archbishop of Canterbury. Not long after that, it was he himself who had the task of crowning our present Queen in Westminster Abbey with half the world watching him on television. Well, well, well. And this was the man who used to deliver the most vicious beatings to the boys under his care. Whew. That's, yeah. But what you're saying is that was not, that, that's Geoffrey Fisher. Geoffrey Fisher was the head of uh, Repton. That is not the head who did the particular beating Dahl is talking about, but he probably did beat boys. I'm sure he yeah. beat boys. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, But a lot of people jumped to his defence when yeah. Boy was published. Yeah, The headmaster who does deliver the beating is a man called John Trail Christie, who okay. was in, also in Holy Orders, yeah. goes on to be headmaster at Westminster School and then principal of Jesus College, Oxford. Right. And although inevitably the distinction between these two headmasters is very important to the people who knew yes, them, yes. really the thrust of Dahl's point remains the same. Yeah. That these beatings were being delivered mm, by mm, people who yeah. were meant to be figures of, of religion, yeah, yeah. men of God, yeah. and that for him seemed unforgivable. Yeah, and I mean, I'll just say what he says. He says, all through my school life, I was appalled by the fact that masters and senior boys were allowed literally to wound other boys and sometimes quite severely i couldn't get over it i never have got over it and it comes very much from the perspective of the person doing the beating Mm. his criticism his critique he isn't against what he calls tickles on the rump which he Mm. thinks does naughty boys the world of good Mm. what he objects Mm. to is the way that performing a beating actually really destroys a figure's humanity yeah and it's not just as you say a tickle on the rump it's a flogging he says that he is a flogging and the one he describes of, you know, the, the headmaster beating this boy whilst lighting a pipe in between, it does, as you say, sound just just incredibly vicious. and, and It's the and psychological yeah. torture yeah, of yeah, it yeah, yeah. rather, than, rather yeah. than the physical dimension yeah. to it. And at the end of it all, a basin, a sponge and a small clean towel were produced by the headmaster and the victim was told to wash away the blood before pulling up his trousers. What's a little bit more complicated too about this story mm-hmm. is that... Dahl's friend Michael Arnold, he doesn't mention in Boy why Michael Arnold was being beaten. Mm-hmm. And he actually suggests that he was quite a young boy, whereas in fact the incident was taking place when Arnold was 18 years old. Mm-hmm. And what had happened was that 18-year-old Michael had been caught in bed with a younger boy. Right. And right. he was expelled, but the punishment was also applied as part of that. Mm-hmm. And obviously it's understandable why Dahl is, is reticent mm-hmm. about sexuality in a, in a book that's aimed at, at children. Mm-hmm. 
but he also lies to his mother about the incident and he tells her that Michael had had a mental breakdown and he'd been sent away for the rest of the term to recover before going on to university. Okay. His mother subsequently does learn the truth and she writes to Dahl and she's shocked that he's been dishonest with her and worried that he is somehow implicated himself and, and that's why he has been lying. And Dahl's housemaster actually writes to her to, to reassure her that Dahl had not been involved in the incident and also to explain to her why he had encouraged Dahl not to tell her the full truth of the matter. I have to say, this is all astonishing. I feel like, Lizzie, you're really, uh, yeah, uncovering uh, uh, some, of the, some of the stories behind this book, this very famous book. And of course, it is a book written for children. It doesn't mention sex. But again, the big thing everyone always says about these schools, both then and now, and you have all the, the kind of scandals around it, is, yeah, the sort of elements of, of child, child sex abuse. So obviously, Dali isn't talking about them in boy. But what you're saying is there were, there were elements of it of it there perhaps between the students Mm. yeah on a lighter note one of the great anecdotes which Dahl really enjoyed telling um you know at parties and Mm -hmm. book launches but which he didn't include in boy is about the sex education that he received um, back at St Peter's his prep school Mm -hmm. apparently the headmaster told the boys you have about your body a certain organ I think you know what I'm talking about well, I want you to realise it's like a torch. There's a sort of bulb at the end of it. If you touch it, it will light up. And if it lights up, your batteries will go flat. And Doug claimed that he was absolutely terrified then about touching his penis and even drying himself after the bath gave him pangs of anxiety and it was only truly alleviated when one of his sisters acquired a hairdryer <laughs> oh listen i don't know what to say there sorry <laughs> you've taken away my, my house <laughs> okay well yeah not look at hairdryer the same way again are you um we could think okay. about though like yeah. there's been so much in the news recently about yeah. about sex education Absolutely. at schools and yeah. what is acceptable and what we should be expecting. Uh, and there you go, Dal's Dahl, got all the answers. <laughs> giving rules on hair dryers, clearly. Um, yeah, um, and probably also that these things are never easy, are they? So yeah, okay. So he doesn't write about that in boy, but he does go around, as you say, giving speeches, and that's his set piece speech, mm. the, the, the set piece anecdote that he gives. Yeah. Okay, brilliant. All right, then, so we've uncovered lots there behind the scenes of Boy. I feel like I'm never going to read it in the same way again. I, I think that's the thing. When you read books as a child, you just have that... You don't have that concept of an unreliable narrator, do you? You just read the book and you just think, oh, the person telling it is the, the hero and is right. And actually, I talked about the analogy with Dickens, a comparison with Dickens. Probably a comparison there. I remember reading Dickens as a kid and thinking Dickens was an absolute hero. And you grow up and find out more about his life. And he was another one who was uh, maybe more flawed than, than you, you realise at first. So actually, maybe let's um, we could sort of maybe wrap up on that then as well. That I guess one of the reasons why perhaps these publishers are keen to edit out some of these less savoury aspects of the books is that in his in his public pronouncements in later life, some of the things Dahl said have also come into coming for a bit of criticism. I think quite quite rightly. So he does seem in later life to have been you know to have said and done some some maybe slightly unpleasant things. Do, can we blame them on his education? Like, what what do you think about that? What's the where, where do you stand on that, on the, the kind of person he was and the kind of things he said as, a, as an adult? It's difficult because plenty of people with the product of that system mm. didn't come out with the same views as Style, and they certainly didn't write the same books as Style, yeah. and have the same commercial yeah. success. So different people take away from experiences different things. Yeah. I think... You know, there is an argument to make that um, Dahl, as someone actually made the comparison with um, with Ian Fleming as well, the mm-hmm. author of the, the James Bond yeah. stories, yeah. that they both had this experience of quite a cruel mm-hmm. world. And as a consequence, some of that cruelty does yeah. come out in their writing. Definitely. Um, we made the comparison with Dickens. You made the comparison with Fleming, which I think is, is right too. And they must be must be quite close in age, Dahl and, and Fleming as well. Mm. I think the other person it's interesting to make a comparison with is also been in the news lately, a little bit older than Dahl, Agatha Christie. So people have been talking perhaps her books are going to get edited um, in the way Dahl's have been. And I think what's interesting there is both uh, Dahl and, and Christie is... There are some probably some bits in their books that, yeah, if you were looking at now, you'd maybe think I've, I've got issues. But 
I think the remarkable thing about both of them is their extraordinary popularity. And I would say with both of them, I, I would say they are still two of my favourite writers because they're so readable. They're so readable. I don't think that about Ian Fleming. I think Ian Fleming's got lucky with the James Bond films. But Dahl and Christie are extraordinarily readable. You pick them up. I just pick this one up to flick through it. And you just find yourself hooked and reading more and more and more. And I find Christie is like that too. And so I think the weird thing is, is they do embody this. They, they, they have all the, the thoughts and the views of people of their era. But their books are so readable and so popular that they've endured beyond that. And that is what is causing this, this tension. <laughs> and in, in a sense, the thing that would make it probably easier for everyone, if, and I think a few people kind of almost suggested this, if, if kids just really got a bit bored with Dahl and moved on from him, and then we could all just move on and put him in the dustbin. But that is not going to happen. No. Because these books are so good and so readable. Um, and so I think we're going to be, I think, you know, we're not just our generation, future generations are going to be reading them and thinking, uh, yeah, what, what's, what's the, the right way to, to, to react to some of these, these, these bits in it. Having said all that, what I would say is some of the things Dahl said in later life, definitely one of the things he said about, about, about Jewish people is, you know, completely outrageous. But the bits that are in these kids' books, some of the things they've edited feel like they've been very, very oversensitive. It does feel like that. Um, you know, some of the things they're taking out that, you know, not calling Augustus Gloop fat, you know, it just feels a bit, a bit excessive um, and a bit, maybe a bit, a bit oversensitive there. I'm missing so, the point too. Yeah. I mean, the, the point of Gloop's yeah. being fat is that it's a visual representation mm. of his greed. Yeah. Okay. The, the, mm. And the greed is a characteristic that I think yeah. we would accept that we could be critical of. The other interesting thing about the edits they made to his work is that normally when you have these debates, it's normally it's because maybe people are saying, oh, there's this modern cultural institution and they want to just focus on the bad bits of our history. What's interesting with the Dahl stuff is they're editing out the bad bits, focus on the good bits. The bit I find astonishing is when they rewrote the bits from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the original text about the Oompa Loompas is that they get smuggled over in large packing cases. So there's a very much an element of they've been forced. And in the rewriting, the Oompa Loompas, uh, Willy Wonka says, oh, they've told me they love it here. You know, so it's almost trying to make the, the thing seem better, <laughs> you know. And I think there's that element of sort of wanting to, to sanitise it, isn't there, to make make him seem maybe a more, more cuddly figure. And you're like, but there is, I think there is just an, a bit of darkness to all of, of Dahl's books, which wherever it comes from, whether it is his, his upbringing or, or, or wherever it's from, it's there and it's something that, whether you like it or not, I think children are, are drawn to and, and find quite compelling. We've looked here at a very elite education. We didn't talk much about Dahl's own family background and his personal wealth, but it wasn't representative of the experience of many pupils at the time. In our next episode we're actually going to flip and have a look at the Education Act of 1870.